When someone is sharing something that is real for them, that is true, we're almost biologically engineered to pay attention to it because something important is happening. This is Awakened Love, the podcast, and I'm your host, Angel. This is a space where we get real, real about sex, love, and awakening. So strap in, let's go deep. What's up, beautiful awakened humans? Thanks for joining us for another episode of Awakened Love. Today we have Andrew Horn, who is a Brooklyn based social entrepreneur, writer, and communication trainer. He was recently called the Dale Carnegie of the digital age by Forbes and spends most of his time running the startup that he co founded, Tribute. He's a dear brother. He is a master of question asking, connection, communication, and I'm so, so grateful to have him here today. Welcome, welcome, brother. Thank you so much for being here. So excited to be here. Yeah. You're a real master of conversation, I would say. I remember when I first met you, you ask a lot of really brilliant questions. Um, and I remember thinking, actually, how rare that is. Can you talk a little bit about like, where does that, where does your curiosity come from? Is that a practice? Have you always been like that? Why is it important to you? Yeah, I have a, a really nuanced and deep journey with my own curiosity um, that really crystallized on one of the Summit Series cruises, this big boat with a bunch of entrepreneurs in the middle of the Caribbean many years ago. But um, I grew up really ostracized by my community. So I was, I grew up in Hawaii and had a lot of difficulty making friends and fitting in. And um, when I got into high school, I developed a lot of performative traits to fit in and really kind of started to feel like I needed to be something to be long. And mm. uh, it started a long journey where I had insecurities about my intelligence, insecurities about my wit and so many other things. And as I started to kind of integrate into, let's call them high achieving air quotes, communities like Summit Series or Renaissance mm -hmm. Weekend, uh, student government conferences when I was in college, um, I, I realized that I had so much doubt about my ability to contribute value in conversations. But I noticed Oof. this pattern that when I asked people bigger, deeper questions about themselves, like what's your dream or what's challenging mm. in your life? that these questions would often provide space for people to come to insights that they found valuable. So I developed mm. this relationship with, I would say questions, not even curiosity, but questions. And there's an important distinction there that when I asked these bigger questions, I could provide value to other people. And that was a reliable performance that I continued to kind of express um, into my early teens. And I had this experience on early 20s, excuse me. And I had this experience at Summit Series where I was talking to this really high powered VC at the time I was running this children's nonprofit in Washington, DC that does adaptive athletics sports for young people with disabilities. And I asked him a question. I think it was something along the lines of what's your dream? If you knew you couldn't fail, what would you do? And I remember that mm -hmm. he talked to me for several minutes. And when he was done, I looked at him and I had completely blanked on the answer. I wasn't paying attention to it at all. And I was like, wait a second, like, what, what are you doing? Like, why did you ask that question? Like, are you asking that question because you really care about the answer or because it's some reliable ploy to try and connect Oof. and to achieve the perception of being liked 
being perceived as smart. Um, and I remember I literally left the the conference area and I walked upstairs and I was on the deck of the ship. And I remember asking myself, it's like, are you asking these questions because you genuinely want the answers or just because you think it's going to have some sort of desired impact? And mm. I really sat in that inquiry for not only that conference, but like the weeks that followed. And what I ultimately came to was this clarity that asking questions was actually just my desired way of being in the world. That when I really thought about asking questions and being curious, I just felt that it was a more interesting way to live my life. Because if I'm talking, I'm largely just repeating something that I already know about myself. And that to ask questions, to understand other people, the world, their ideas, was fundamentally just a more interesting way to operate. And so the more mm -hmm. that I embraced that this was actually just an authentic expression of myself, the more I was able to commit myself to it. And I have an even deeper journey of just learning to trust myself more. And that's a lot of the social flow stuff that I bet we'll talk about. But um, what happened is that my questions, which were largely a performance, led me back deeper into my curiosity, which was just what I want to know. And so my questions were no longer rote. They weren't templatized. My questions were just a vehicle to express my curiosity. And the deeper mm. that I have practiced that, the more finely tuned I've become to what it is that I want to know in every single moment, whether that's with someone I'm just meeting, whether that's with my partner, whether that's with a client. And it's a really fun way to operate in the world. And one of my favorite things about mm. myself. Mm, yeah, it's one of my favorite things about you too. It's really, um, it stands out actually when you meet someone um, that has a genuine curiosity. And I know you said that, you, that it's not templatized and I understand that because I think, you know, when we're actually um, mentoring a group of coaches this year and I was talking a lot about this recently, that if you're genuinely curious and actively listening, the next question will just naturally arise of what you want to know next. And... Sometimes we need some good like sentence stems or starters to like kick someone off. Do you have favorite questions as like kickoffs? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I have what I call my big five. And I think that these are for me. And I find that there's oftentimes some crossover in other people's. But um, I think that everyone has this, this fundamental curiosity in the world. Like if you were just to ask yourself the question, generally speaking, what do I most want to know about the people that I meet? And if you just were to ask yourself that question, like if you were to meet a stranger, if you were to meet someone in your industry, a uh, potential romantic partner, if you just to ask yourself, what do I most want to know about that person? Um, and write down some of your responses. I find that you'll see some similarities about what it is that you're interested in. It could be ideas. It could be about their person, their experience as a human. Um, it could be about their politics. It could be whatever it is for you that's most authentic and, and generative and, and intriguing. And so for me, my big five that I offer up at a lot of conferences, and usually I just kind of resort to because it's true for me, is um, what's most exciting for you? Mm -hmm. Number two would be what's challenging for you, which I think those mm -hmm. two um, provide a space for people to go wherever the energy is alive for them. And I think that so often mm. we focus on what we perceive to be positive. So oftentimes I'll ask people like, what's good? What sucks? And it's this idea that <laughs> sucking is not bad. It's just, it's inherent in the human experience to have challenges. And so to create space where people can be full spectrum humans 
and be experiencing really high highs and really low lows at the same time and that they don't have to pick. So I love having those two and being available for that. The third would be, what's the dream? Like understanding what Mm. people really care about. If they knew they couldn't fail, what would you put your energy into? Uh, Number four would be, um, what are you learning right now? And kind of like understanding like what is it that people are actively trying to cultivate, whether that's through wisdom, skill, like physical pursuits, anything like that. What are you learning right now? Uh, and the fifth is what do you care about? It's just generally like what's what's important to you? Just straight up, like let's be literal about it. Understand like what it is that you care <laughs> about. And so mm-hmm. those, those five for me and why that's helpful is that like while those are a list, right? So they are templatized, but also that's just – authentic and it may evolve over time to what I generally want to know. And when I look at those questions for anyone I meet, I pretty much, I'm, I do want to know that about them. I feel that that is some of the questions that are going to help me to understand the depth of their authentic experience uh, most deeply. And so that, that awareness of the questions that honor my fundamental curiosity provide me with a sense of confidence going into any room. Cause again, when you look at the, kind of just the the word self-conscious and what it evokes. It's that you are hyper aware of the self and it's where we feel Mm. that kind of social anxiety and social situations. And one of the most effective ways to counter self-consciousness is to introduce other consciousness. And so Mm. one of my favorite things to do with, with clients and when I teach and when I speak is to really engage social anxiety and awkwardness just through the lens that number one, it's it's a it's an inherently human experience that like we all, even people who don't identify as shy or awkward, who identify as extroverts, everyone feels social anxiety. And so we can just humanize that experience and it's normal to feel that. I mean, 60% of people in the US identify as either shy or dealing with social anxiety. So you're actually in the majority if you experience that. But that fundamentally, anytime we feel tension or anxiety or resistance, in a social situation, that that resistance that we feel, it's just an opportunity for us to recognize that we're likely focused on external forces that we don't control, which is how people mm. are going to respond to us, which is how we are being perceived, worrying about being liked. These, again, external forces that we are never going to control. And so we can use that physical reference point as an opportunity to put our awareness internally. And one of the things that we always mm. control is our curiosity. Mm. Our curiosity is ours. And so we can use that of saying like, oh, I'm likely focused on these external forces. What's one of the internal ones that I can control? Curiosity. You will always have your curiosity as a conduit to drive you towards connection. And simply asking yourself mm. that question, of what do I want to know, is one of the most reliable ways to provide yourself with content that will authentically drive you into conversation and connection that's meaningful to you. Yes. Oh my gosh. Want to hear that, that question the first time you posed of like, what do I genuinely want to know? Um, I felt like such an activation in my heart space. It's such a beautiful question. I hope everyone listening wrote that down and really does do that exercise. You're talking about how social anxiety is this focus on external forces and often ones we can't control. What do you think triggers that why do we do that shift into this like focusing on external forces that we can't control yeah i mean it's it's the very human desire to control 
outcomes. And it's a very mm. helpful way of relating with the world. That's the thing is that it's not a, a bad thing to do this, to perceive potential outcomes and ramifications of our actions is very human. And it's not, uh, it's just that sometimes this can become counterproductive and the, the way and the place where this often becomes counterproductive is in interpersonal dynamics and relationships. And if you look at social anxiety and, and the biological basis for it is again, it's that if we look at, you know, primal times where cave dwellers were in primal communities. Um, if you were ostracized by your group, right? If you said something, didn't do something, and were kicked out of your tribe, you're very less likely to be provided with support. You're very much less likely to kind of uh, benefit from the hunt. And so you're likely going to die. And so there's this fundamental fear response in us of being ostracized, of not being included, of not receiving love. And so oftentimes our way of controlling that fear impulse, which again is very human, is to try and control these external outcomes, right? We're focusing mm -hmm. on saying the right thing so people will respond positively. We're focused on doing the thing that we think people will like because that's actually going to get us included. But what happens is that this way of externally focused thinking, again, opens us up to anxiety. And so the process of taking that external focus, shifting it back internally again, is so counter to how we have been raised and taught to belong and to excel and to connect with people. But when we do that, when we begin to trust our authentic experience, connect with it and offer that to others, it is usually the most effective way to earn trust and respect from other people because they can feel that real integrity and, um, resonance with self there's like less dissonance there mm. yeah it's like an embodiment it's funny that right like the thing we do to try and control whether we'll be accepted or connected with actually drives us further away totally. from that authentic connection um and you're right i really think that at least i find those people very magnetic who are super embodied and present in themselves and um willing to like make love to their weirdness and be in their humanity and like that vulnerable act of like being really comfortable with who they are, um, which isn't easy. I would say, I think we're talking about a lot of the themes now, but you, you touched on social flow, the book you're working on. Yeah. And I would love to hear more about that. And perhaps we can weave in some of what we've been talking about into what you're working on. Yeah. You talked about these concepts, right. Of trusting the self, knowing you're weird, and so when you look at the etymology of, of what we relate to confidence, what is confidence? Confidence is usually understood as a belief in one's ability to accomplish our object. It's, it's walking into a business situation or social interaction and thinking like, I can do this. I have what it takes to do this. It's trusting ourselves, knowing ourselves and trusting ourselves. And the old adage of just be yourself has been thrown around forever. <laughs> but if I were to ask most people, well, how do you do that? How do you be yourself? I don't think that there has ever been a really coherent framework that helped people to do that. Who am I? How do you answer this massive kind of esoteric question? Who am I? And so what social flow does is it is a four question framework that fundamentally shifts our awareness back onto our intrinsic motivation to communicate and connect. And what I found is that mm. in any social situation, you have these four pillars of awareness that you do control. And that is intentionality, 
So that's how do I want to be? It's the first question. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I'll, I'll start by saying, uh, Angel, say the word I can. I can. And what are the letters of I can? I C A N. Perfect. So in any social situation, we can say, I can. And it's intentionality. How do I want to be? Curiosity. What do I want to know? Which we've already talked about. Replace self-consciousness with other consciousness. Um, Authenticity, Mm -hmm. which is what am I feeling and excited to contribute? It's pointing our curiosity internally and connecting with that, which it is that we're truly energized to share. And the last is Mm -hmm. now, is how can I become more present? And recognizing that most of our anxiety in social situations is related to a prediction of what the future holds. It's how things will go. It's how things, how people will respond to us. And so inviting ourselves back into the present moment and then cycling back through this, we're just more aware of what it is that we do control in any social situation. And what I would say is that, again, like who you are in any social situation, you are your intentionality, you are your curiosity, you are your authenticity and your presence. And there are practical Mm. ways that we can channel each of those things whenever we're with other people in any type of conversation or presentation. And so social flow is is fundamentally that. And what's fun about it and why it's called social flow is that it builds off of a lot of the cutting edge research around flow states. And I imagine that a lot of your Mm. listeners are familiar with flow states, but flow states just largely regarded as the peak state of human performance. It's when you are... Uh, performing your best and feeling your best, you know, oftentimes with minimal effort, you're in the flow. And so Mm -hmm. this whole body of research, yeah, timelessness, the absence of self, so many of the things. And one of the beautiful aspects of uh, flow research that was, so flow was a term that was coined by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi at Boston University in 1980s. And when he talks about one of the Uh, fundamental triggers to create flow states. He talks about intrinsic motivation. And so he said Mm -hmm. that to to live a happier life, to create more flow in our lives, um, focus on that which is intrinsically rewarding to you. And what that means is that, again, Mm -hmm. I'm doing the thing because I enjoy the thing, not because of the result of the thing, right? And so if we think about like, what's something that you just love to do for the sake of doing it? Like what just brings you energy every time you do it? Learning, particularly about psychology and spirituality. Like I could just do it all day, every day. Right. And so it's because it's like, sure, the end result of that, of garnering wisdom is very rewarding and fulfilling for you, but also just the process in and of itself is rewarding. Right. And one of the the beautiful terms that he used to coin this experience is that for you, learning about psychology and spirituality is an autotelic experience. And autotelic is one of my favorite words. And autotelic means something that is done for its own sake. Something, something that is done for its own sake. And so here's the very tantric. Yeah, no, very much so. I'm going to I'm getting there. Because it it is, it's that what we're doing is we're creating the Tantra of conversation. Because if you think about some of the best, the best advice I've ever received about how to have great sex is to become less goal oriented, right? Is to release my desire for whether it's orgasm, whether it's ejaculation, being Mm. uh, received or appreciated. If I can release my focus on a goal and focus on what is energizing and pleasurable in the moment, 
the experience itself yes. becomes more generative and more enjoyable. And how do we do that mm -hmm. for conversation? Because so often we're engaging in conversation and communication because we want the end result. We want to be perceived a certain way. We want to be welcomed into a community. We want people to say yes to us. And it's natural to have those goals so we can have those goals. But one of the principles of flow states is a clear goal loosely held. And so when we're mm -hmm. able to just come back to well, what would make conversation itself enjoyable, then it just becomes mm. easy. We're able to tap into social flow where we are just mm. doing the thing naturally because we enjoy it. We don't need to be mm. liked or perceived a certain way because when we're focused on our intentionality, what what's going to make this fun for me? How do I want to be to be me? What I want to know and understand what's generative for me to share and how can I be more here, more present? Then conversation mm -hmm. becomes rewarding in and of itself. It becomes an autotelic pursuit and that's when things really start to open up mm, it reminds me of this quote i read on instagram recently and i wish i could remember who authored it but it was um don't fall in love with the outcome instead allow the creative process itself to penetrate you and i was like whoa beautiful it feels very resonant with what you're sharing um one of the points you made was what do i want to contribute and I think, and I'm not sure if this is true um, in your work, if you've seen this, that a lot of folks can struggle with knowing what they bring to a space and what are their gifts and what can they contribute. Is, is that something you could speak to if anyone listening is feeling that way? Yeah, absolutely. I think that when I think of authenticity, I often <laughs> relate to it as pointing our curiosity inwards. And what I would say is that for a lot of people who are starting on this journey of learning to trust themselves and to express themselves authentically, that one of the biggest inhibitors is because we don't have a fundamental connection or awareness of ourselves, of who am I? What am I interested in? What are my beliefs? What are my values? What are my priorities? And so I would say that oftentimes, like, it's first just sitting with because for a long time, I had such a desire to connect in social situations. And I was so focused on what people needed to hear from me to be liked. And then the more that I was able to understand, well, here are the things that I care about and that I'm interested in and that I am actively engaged in learning and cultivating wisdom on is that I naturally became more aware of those five questions that I talked about for the external world. What's exciting for me? What's challenging for me? What's my dream? What am I learning right now? If I simply take those questions and point them internally at myself, I am going to connect with content that is alive and likely generative for me to share. Because again, it's the, like the, the most radical and effective thing we can share to connect is what is real. There's no such thing as right. It's just what is real. And pointing our curiosity inwards and allowing to connect with that, I do believe is our greatest gift to share. And that when you look at the, the greatest teachers, it's again, like they have oftentimes studied and meticulously worked through material. But at the end of the day, the best speakers that you know are not the ones who are preparing long, drawn out presentations where they're remembering word by word, like what they are connected to is really a share of what it is that they know, what it is that moved them. And it's that authenticity and connection with self that makes them magnetic because you can tell that they're communicating yes. from that place. I think that mm. there's there's a frame, we'll probably talk a little bit about men's work while we're here, but there's a frame that one of my mentors introduced um, because a lot of the work that I do in the realm of men's work is really about 
what we call emotional mastery. It's, it's experiencing and expressing our emotions transparently. And men especially have a penchant for getting into story. We tell stories about what the future is going to happen, who we are, what we need. And what we can say is that when you're working with a man and guiding them through their emotional experience, if you have the impulse to look away, that person is not in their emotional experience. And we've all had that experience mm. of being someone in a conversation where you look at the door, you like you see what's going on. But I guarantee you that when someone is sharing something that is real for them, especially if it's coming mm. through emotion felt as physical reference point in the body, you cannot turn away. We are truly, if you mm. think about this, for how long we've existed as humans and so many of those years where we were pre-language, where we were communicating through body language, right, and emoting, it's that when someone is sharing something that is real for them, that is true, we're almost biologically engineered to pay attention to it because something important is happening. And so, yeah. Well, I would say, and I wonder if any of the ladies listening, so I'd be curious on your perspective on this. As women, very often, and I'm going to use the generalization of a heteronormative relationship because yeah. that's the relationship I'm in, but, you know, sometimes you'll be really in your emotional experience and uh, perhaps your partner won't be able to look and stay with you because oftentimes men, is it nature? Is it nurture? Probably a lot of it is how we socialize men to disconnect from their emotions or that yeah. they're not allowed to express. Or So then it's like if you're in your anger or you're in your fear or you're in, in your tears, um, it can take a man who's done a lot of work to be able to actually maintain connection to you in that space. So I don't know... I don't know that it's automatic that when you're really in your emotions that maybe I feel that in the coaching space, but we train for that, right, to, to to lean in. But I do think sometimes people, and not necessarily just in couples, like sometimes maybe friends or family members might not actually lean into you when you're in a real emotional experience because they don't know how to lean into that part of themselves. Would you also hold that to be true? Yeah, I mean, I guess that I'm probably holding it more in the frame of, social conversation where you right. will not be bored if someone is sharing from right. that place. You may be deeply triggered yes. and running for the door <laughs> because you don't know how to handle it, but something will right. be happening that will be connecting with you, right? And if someone's withdrawing right. from a situation, it's because it's triggering something in there. And so, you know, may not be the, the most conducive with connection in every single moment. But as it relates to that, I think so much of the reason that I, I value this emotional work for men, it's because increasing our capacity to simply be with our own emotions without the desire to withdraw, to retreat, to attack, increases our capacity to hold those emotions with anybody else, you know? And, and mm, so that's yes. why it's so fundamental. So I, I would agree with you that you know, if people have not done some of this deeper emotional work, it can be hard to hold not just their own emotional experience, but that of anyone that they're with. Yes, very, very true. I'd love to hear the origin story of Junto. You're talking a little bit about it now, the men's work that you do. Yeah, can totally. You share more? So essentially what had happened is, is really the origin of social flow was because I got invited to this training in something called Gestalt Awareness Practice at the Cleveland Institute of Gestalt. And Gestalt therapy is its own thing. And people would kind of compare it to psychoanalysis, which was the predominant uh, modality of psychotherapy through basically you know, the 60s through 80s. Um, Gestalt was a more experiential 
instead of analytical process. It was much more about creating spaces for people to just become present to and to inquire and explore their experience, often through the lens of emotions. And Gestalt awareness practice was really a more holistic, exactly, awareness practice. It wasn't presented as a therapeutic modality, but really as a, a practice of awareness. So I got invited to this workshop and I had this, this really funny experience looking back at it where the facilitator invites us to relate to ourselves in, in very specific ways uh, before we begin. And he says, I want you to engage your thoughts and feelings as real and valid and deserving of a voice. I want you to mm. engage your curiosity as real and valid and deserving of a voice. If you have a question, ask it. Mm. And I will invite you to exist in the here and now to just be fully present. Mm. And whenever I sign up for any sort of personal development workshop, I kind of just want to abandon my identity or way of being. I'm just like, whatever you're offering, I'm, let's go there. Let's try it on for size and see who I am in your frame. And there was this woman there. Uh, her name was Megan. And we were two of the only 30-year-olds in the class. I was in my late, but uh, yeah, it was the early 30s. Most of the people there were in their 50s. It was an entrepreneurial group. And I really wanted to connect with this woman. She had built this big media empire. She was really cool. And I just thought, we're the two young people here. We should connect and hang out. Um, but I think we've all had that experience. And this is certainly mine in the moment, which is that I'm trying to make inroads. I'm asking her questions. And she's just not having it. I'm just getting iced out. Mm. She's giving me one word answers. She's <laughs> doing what I was talking about, which is like looking at everyone else while we're talking. And so I start to feel bad. I start to get insecure of like, oh, this successful entrepreneur isn't interested in talking to me. Like, what is it about me that makes her not interested here? And so I start to withdraw. Mm. And then we have this experience at the first break where I go to the coffee machine. Megan kind of walks out. I see her walking towards me. It's just the two of us. And I remember the prompts from the facilitator. He says, whatever you're feeling and thinking is real and valid, deserving of a voice. So I said, okay, let's, let's do that. And so she walks over and I said, hey, Megan, I just want to let you know that I think what you built is amazing and super cool. And I, and I wanted to share that I felt like I've been trying to make inroads with you and that you haven't really been interested. And I just wanted to let you know that I'm probably going to stop. And if you're ever interested in connecting this weekend, just let me know. And I'd love to chat and connect. And guess Talk what? about radical transparency. <laughs> that was the prompt, right? Let's give it a whirl. And do you know what the next mm -hmm. thing that, how do you think she responded? Probably very positively. She started bawling. So yeah. she breaks down in tears. And immediately <laughs> she says, I don't want to fucking be here. She's like, my co-founder wow. is suing me. My boyfriend is breaking up with me. This is the last place on the planet that I want to be. And immediately, it was like the lines of the matrix had presented themselves, not just for this relationship, but every relationship in my life, that I was not interacting with reality, that I was interacting with this fabrication of what other people thought of me that led mm. to these feelings of insecurity, shame that I'm not good enough. And what happened is we walked back into the room, Megan shared what was real for her. And then you saw five other people in the room of 30 people who are like, I think this is stupid. I don't want to be here either. Right. And so it brought the entire room into this deeper layer of authenticity. And the, and one of the fundamental shifts for me that happened in that room is that I saw that my authenticity was not just about me feeling good or being myself, but that fundamentally, if I cared about the experience of others, that my authenticity 
could be and was an act of service that liberates other people's authenticity. It's that yes. I I would ask you about any of you some of the most beautiful friendships I know. And like, so you think about your women or anyone who's listening to this, just think about your close group of friends. And I'll ask you a question. Mm. When you think about your friends, do you want those mm. people to feel like they can be fully themselves and honest in your presence? Yes. And I then, always joke that I want on my tombstone. <laughs> uh, she made me feel safe. Hmm. So she made me feel safe, so, right? And so yeah. even right there, it's that, so if we want that for the people in our life, whether it's our friends, our family, our coworkers, how can we truly want that for them if we are not willing to model it first, right? Yeah. How can we expect other people to feel safe to be themselves if we're not willing to model it first? And what's so powerful mm-hmm. about that frame is, again, it's like, especially for me, who I feel like I identify jokingly as like a recovering codependent, I historically am, am much better at um, othering than selfing, validating other people's mm-hmm. opinions than validating my own. And so what's so helpful about this frame, especially for people who have patterns of codependence or othering, is that it's a, it's a really practical way to see how something that we want for ourselves is genuinely a gift and act of service for the people that we care about is I would say that yes. it is actually the most authentic and ethical way to provide space for the people you care about to be safe is to do it yourself. And yes. Um, so I came out of that experience and at the time, um, what had really happened is I, I've always had uh, in my adult life, strong groups of male friends And there was a groundswell that was happening that I was seeing around men's work. And so I was inspired to take some of these techniques around authentic communication and to try and put them to work in a weekly men's group with some of my best friends in New York. And so I gathered eight of my friends and I said, just come for one session. Let's try this on. Let's see how it goes. If it works, we'll commit to a month and we'll commit to a year. And so eight of these guys who were my best friends all came together. We connected with these prompts of just sharing honestly and authentically about what was real for us. And I'll always remember this, that at the end of our first session, it was just two hours in my Brooklyn apartment. Uh, My friend Neil, he just looks around and he just says, I feel so much less alone. Mm. And and everyone, we have this device where we, we bang on our chests with one hand when we empathize with someone and everyone banged on their chest. And there was something really powerful in that moment of realizing that I was fortunate enough to have really great relationships, but even creating a space like this, like we all felt so much less alone, so much more connected. And, you know, similarly, I think that when the events of Me Too started happening and there was a lot of conversations happening publicly about toxic masculinity, masculinity in general, what the world needs for men, I just became very called to create a space where men could be fully and completely themselves and over time, mm-hmm. as my work has developed and I've started to understand more about the historical imperative of men's work and the role that it has played in society, kind of looped all of kind of these communication frameworks into a, a ritual rite of passage that allows men to inspect and decondition their identity, especially through the lens of masculinity, so they, they can mm. really recreate it on their own terms in a way that is authentic and honest to who they truly know themselves to be. Mm, wow. Powerful. 
I mean, speaking of, I guess from, from my perspective, that's the point of spiritual work or the path or sincere seeking is to decondition who the world has taught us to be so we can reveal and embody who it is we truly are. Um, and I'm hearing you talk about like these spaces and also rites of passage. Um, can you share a little bit about, you use the term toxic masculinity. And I think that we all have our own assumptions of what that means to us, but I'd love to hear what does that phrase mean to you? Yeah, I think it's important to simply break down what masculinity is or like what is a, a shared definition then we can talk about toxic masculinity um, so mm -hmm. masculinity if you're going to bring that word into play is inherently subjective the the actual definition of masculinity is that it is a collection of traits characteristics uh that we associate with the experience of a man right so it's mm -hmm. inherently subjective because the characteristics mm -hmm. and traits that we associate with a man are going to differ from person to person and so similarly, like if that's what masculinity, then toxic masculinity are the negative antisocial characteristic characteristics and traits that we associate with the experience of a man. And ultimately, mm. when we're talking about these things, I think it's most useful to talk about them through our first person judgments and perspective, because if we are trying yes. to assume like what it is that is right for everybody, it'd be becomes very, very hard to do that and oftentimes less productive. And so mm -hmm. I think that there were a lot of people that were sharing perspectives about what toxic masculinity is. And similarly, like this is where I think we have a novel approach to rites of passage and the, the value of them and the role that they play is that so often um, society has held a very rigid um idea of what it meant to be a man and if you look at mm. where the modern men's work movement originated is it was actually a response to second wave feminism and so basically what was happening is that you you were in a time where women were receiving much needed and deserved economic representation and so what happened is women started to radically enter the workforce to become breadwinners is that you had this shift in how men were identifying themselves because so long it had been very rigid as woman is nurturer man provider and mm -hmm. so when that no longer became the societal construct there became a need to have a conversation around what does it mean to be a man when we're not just subscribing to this very narrow and rigid understanding of it and so it provided spaces for those very important conversations of like what do we think it means to be a man and throughout history, rites of passage, which again, if we look at the etymology, a rite of passage is any experience that allows an individual to transition from one uh, place of being into a new place of being and oftentimes set of responsibilities in their community. So rite of passage mm. is fundamentally, it's a, it's a ritual or an experience that allows someone to transition into one identity within their community to a new identity and oftentimes new responsibility. And you, what do you think are the biggest transitions for men? Like what are those archetypes or transitions? Yeah, I mean, see? the ones that and I think that this is a great question to ask is because oftentimes the biggest transitions for men, there's a very important shift to grasp here, 
which is that I think it's the, the culprit for something that I call Peter Pan syndrome, which is that you have a lot of very, very grown up men acting like boys <laughs> in their commitment to themselves. Mm-hmm. And so the the most ubiquitous rites of passage that we experienced for so long were first and foremost, they were religious for a very long time. And you have participation mm-hmm. in religion that has been drastically declining uh, for a very long time. And then you had some that were experienced by mostly everybody. And those were marriage and child rearing. And the important thing mm-hmm. to recognize about these is if you were to look in the 1950s and 60s, when were most men having babies and getting married? It was in their early 20s. And fun mm-hmm. and fundamentally, what this rite of passage evoked was a shift in your focus on self to a shift in our focus on other is that I am going Mm. to consider and take responsibility for the experience of another through my partner or Mm. through a child. Whereas now those Mm. have been pushed off into our forties and fifties and people are able to persist Mm -hmm. with this self-centered approach to their lives. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think that, and you also had conscription, which was service in the military. So again, if you look at these very uh, direct and significant initiations, um, they've kind of been pushed off. And so I think that that's the reason that, you know, a lot of these new ritual rites of passage initiations are helpful. But a lot of times rites of passage were, especially as we look at the rite of passage from boy to man, it's people were stepping into an identity that was uh, defined by the community, right? Here's what it means to be a man. Here are the expectations mm-hmm. and the responsibilities of you. And I think that that, that especially kind of like in earlier times of uh, tribal civilizations was very important for the thriving of those communities inside to say like, here are your very direct responsibilities and what's expected of you. And you needed to fit that role for the thriving of the whole. Whereas I don't think that we're in a time where those types of collective articulations are necessarily beneficial. I think that we're in a time now Mm. where the purpose and what we do with our rites of passage is that there is nobody who can tell you what it means to be a man other than you, but we will Mm. challenge you and implore you that it is crucial for the thriving of the whole, not just your micro community, but the macro communities that you belong to, that you are very clear about what does it mean to be a man? What is toxic masculinity Mm. for me? So Mm. that you have a clear understanding of what that is. And so I think that that's really what modern rites of passage, I hope can provide is an initiation Mm. that's not saying, do this thing and you will become a man by these standards, but do this thing and you will step deeper into an understanding of what you think it means to be a man and who you are on your own terms. And simply by doing Mm. that, people are going to connect with values that drive pro-social behaviors that serve not only them, but their families, their friends and their larger communities. So. Mm. Yeah. For some reason, the question that sprung up as I was listening to you is like, I would love to hear from you. Most of our listeners, I, I think 90% of our listeners are women um, and conscious women at that. I'm curious, you know, you're a conscious man and you're speaking of that process of becoming more conscious and supporting men through that process. How would you say, how can a human love a man really well? What does that look like from your perspective to love a man really well? Hmm. Uh, To love a man 
What a great question. Uh, to love a man. And this is through the feminine lens? Or yeah, just the- through the feminine lens and the romantic lens, I would even say. Yeah. Like, you know, awakened love. We, <laughs> how do we love a man well? Mm. I think it is fundamentally to uh, want the best for them. I think it's basically wanting mm. the best for them. It is this layer of compassion. And so I'd say mm. it is a foundation of compassion, wanting the best for them, which then to me evokes this expression of curiosity of not necessarily what do I think is best for them, but what do they think is best for them? Like what's going on for them? What do they need? Mm -hmm. What do they desire for their own ascension, evolution, uh, growth? And the next is it's a fun dance of acceptance and accountability and loving accountability. And it's acceptance Mm -hmm. of their experience, being able to welcome in and hold that. I think that for, you know, a lot of the work that we do at the Junto is really around shame. It's growing up with the Mm -hmm. experience that some of the aspects of ourselves are not welcome, are unlovable, are fundamentally not okay, which leads us to hide and not share ourselves. And so I'd say it's that acceptance. And then the last one of what it means to love a man is there's a layer of loving accountability of holding them accountable for their highest and if you are in a relationship i think fundamentally when relationship works it's because someone is choosing you to reflect them is to be their mayor there there must be a level of respect for i trust this person's perspective on the world and on me and so to radically and transparently share that reflection is that like I do not believe that transcendence or actualizing potential is capable without the love of a woman in this context. I think that that's mm. fundamental. So, how would you? Um, <laughs> what's the best way to give a man feedback from your perspective as his partner, as a woman? as a female partner. It's a very heteronormative sentence, but I'm just going to ask the question because I'm genuinely curious. Yeah. So I would say the the best way to give feedback um, is through the, the first person owned experience. You know, as much research as I've done in the space, I think that nonviolent communication when done beautifully, conscious communication, whatever you want to call it is being able it just works it just it just it just works it's that yeah. it's that again it's that if we can kind of invite in the process of helping a man to evaluate specific things that they have done and the impact that it has had you are going to be so much more effective at having that feedback received um yeah but again i think that especially for so many men who have not had the experience of the shadow and the shame aspect of themselves being received and integrated, there's a real sensitivity to criticism and to shame because they so deeply mm-hmm. are not available to go there. And so mm-hmm. the, the gut reaction to that type of feedback is just withdrawal or attack. And yeah. 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 Working with shame is tricky, huh? Like we really, as humans, I think it's such a human experience you were describing 
of the parts of us that feel unlovable and therefore that we have to hide. And I think that is one of the fundamental things we can do in re- to have healthy relationship is to really track what brings up shame in us and therefore, yeah, do we act it out or act it in? And if we're tracking our own experience of shame, then we can do what you did in the by the water cooler with that woman and just say, hey, um, this is what I want. And this is what I'm noticing. Another thing I like to, to share is like what I'm afraid of. My fear is yeah. X. And the, the phrase that I've noticed really the masculine really loves is can you help me? Hmm. Which is like, I'm, I noticed when you said X, Y, Z, I felt this. And what I really want to experience with you is this. Can you help me? Yeah. And then I noticed that really has them lean in. Oh, I love that. Instead That's of powerful. you doing it wrong. Powerful. Yeah. Because I mean, it's. Why do you think that works? I think that there is a layer in us that, you know, I mean, even if you look at um, kind of like our our gendered roles throughout history, it's that, you know, it evolved from protecting again in tribal times to protecting was then superseded by providing in modern times. And so there is Mm -hmm. both this inculcated, but I'd also say likely just kind of innate in our experience need to serve to really kind of like validate oneself and to affirm you know that who we are and if you can present you know your your feelings your experience your desires in that frame of can you serve me can you support me mm. that there's a piece mm. of us that that wants to show up and so i think it's super powerful yeah, it's like an invitation to rise instead of like a pushing down or a criticizing. And I think what I'm realizing through us having this conversation is that I think f- for the for men on their side is like learning to um, express the emotion because then a woman can lean into her natural desire to nurture yeah. instead of not knowing, trying to track you, nagging, trying to get it out of you, what's actually happening, I'm fine, no, you're not, I can feel something, isn't. you know what I mean? A lot of times women will track their partner's emotions more deeply than their partner is. Yeah. And and is it nature or not true? I don't know, but women definitely receive less socialization around their emotions and, and, and verbalizing their emotions, which gives us a head start at EQ. And so very often you're tracking your partner's emotions before they even know something's wrong. And so that can create this kind of um, crunch. Whereas when a man, if he's in shame, instead of withdrawing or lashing out or whatever it is, I mean, any human, of course, but for the, the sake of the dynamic we're discussing can say, I'm actually feeling a lot of shame right now. I'm feeling really blamed right now. I feel like you're making me wrong right now. I'm feeling whatever it is. Then, then the woman in the same way as when a woman says, can you help me? A woman can go, oh my gosh, like, let me lean into nurturing you because you're, you're telling me how you feel versus um, acting it out in a way to try and hide it. <laughs> I, I love things that are so pithy or easily shareable. And that is, that's a tweetable. That's very, that's really good. <laughs> because it's just mm, a couple. It's just what a, does pithy mean? Pithy is something that has like a lot of meaning and is concise. If something is pithy, it's concise mm. and it's clear. Mm. It's like how it sounds. I like words like that. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so we're talking about um deconditioning a lot yeah. uh i'd be curious to, to lean in more around this conversation around mas- masculinity of around how do we architect our sense of self through the lens of masculinity yeah totally 
I mean, I think that it's it's fun to look at masculinity of what are the most significant forces that are impressing itself upon it. Where do we develop our sense of masculine identity? And I would say that there's a couple that I find to be very clear. And so the first would be our, for most men, their relationship with their father, for better or for worse. Mm. Uh, the mm-hmm. second would be their relationship with other men. So how they've been socialized through their male friendships. Um, mm. And then what I would also say is oftentimes it's really engaging with our own shame. And I think that, like, again, it's just the the parts of ourselves that we have told ourselves are really not welcome, that we need to hide away, not engage. And so I think it's that um, shadow part of the self, which I think has so much to do with the kind of hardline masculine archetype of the the warrior and the person who's emotionless and fearless and all these other things. But so what happens is how do we architect our identity, I think, is just asking ourselves some questions fundamentally of really like, so we, we talked about them here, but what does it mean to be a man? What is our answer to that mm-hmm. question? Most people, you know, do you mm-hmm. want to speak about it purely biologically? What does it mean to be a man? I think it's helpful to come to an understanding of that, especially in times when there's a lot of conversations that make that issue quite complex. And then second, mm-hmm. I think that there is what is healthy masculinity for me So what are the characteristics Mm -hmm. and traits that I associate with the experience of a man? There's a helpful exercise that you can do for this one, which is you create four quadrants. And basically what you have is you have uh, in the top quadrant, it's um, healthy masculine. And then in the top right, you have unhealthy masculine. And the bottom left, you Mm -hmm. have uh, healthy feminine. And in the bottom right, you have Mm -hmm. uh, unhealthy feminine. And what you're mm-hmm. able to do is just do a quick audit of your own relation to these terms. What is healthy masculinity? What yeah. is a positive masculine trait? What is a, a negative masculine trait for me? And what's really helpful mm-hmm. about it is, especially for people who are just embarking on this, is that it helps us to understand some of our own biases and understandings of these different traits of how we show them. But it also shows us that obviously we all occupy these different traits across the spectrum of masculine and and feminine, which provides a degree of fluidity for people to occupy both of those spates because they see the positive aspects of both of them. So I think that that's what helps people to come out of a very rigid identity of like, I just need to be masculine. It's like, I I really hope not. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yes. Yeah. And I love your allowance of like, defining that for yourself. I I will have often said that and everyone listening will have heard me say it so many times around this frustration of the the binary and masculine feminine and other coaches or teachers defining what that is instead of people exactly as you're saying asking the question what does it mean to be a woman to me? Yeah. Um so I really like that exercise because there's a like there's a complexity of how you can hold all of those different layers um totally. versus this like black and white binary thinking. My Lord, brother, I feel like we could talk for many more hours, but we're at time. So we're going to move into some rapid fire if you're ready. Let it rip. Biggest turn on. A woman who can receive. Mm. Fastest way to turn you off. Shame and criticism. (laughs) Any kinks? Oh, so many. I'm just getting my exploration of BDSM and power dynamics and 
just the ability to take control that's like deeply in the service of my partner. So mm. I would say that that is becoming a very real kink. Amazing. If you could be any animal, what animal would you be? You know, I had a funny, I'm making this less rapid fire. My. They're never rapid fire, by the way. The ongoing joke is that it's a process oriented time period <laughs> rapid fire. So don't worry about it. <laughs> for, some, for some reason, I've been identifying with fox energy quite a lot recently. Mm. Which I don't even like because a fox feels kind of small. And. I don't know. But no, they're awesome. We have them up here. Yeah. They're amazing. I like them because they're a cross between a cat and a dog, <laughs> kind of. Like they're a dog, but they've got cat energy. Yeah. I don't know. I like them. All right. So I'll take, yeah. I'll take fox. Patrick identifies with the fox too. Oh, yeah? Okay. Well, then I'll definitely say yeah. fox. Now it's completely <laughs> Um, If you could decide on your last meal on earth, what would you eat? I just did this with a friend. We, we mapped out our entire day of our last meal. Um, wow. you know, what comes to mind is, um, probably the last meal that I ever had with, it's like the last happy meal that I ever had with my entire family together. And it was mm. a big plate of mashed potatoes at a restaurant that was closed in a <laughs> like empty town in upstate New York. For some reason, that's what comes to mind. But I think if I were going to have any food, mm. like that would take me back to a place of like feeling really connected and happy with my family. Like that, mm. that comes to mind. Weird. I don't, didn't expect that. Bless. I love that. Mashed potatoes are great. Connection's awesome. <laughs> What's not to love? But now, now I'm like, um, but there's so much other food I want to eat. <laughs> mashed potatoes? Come on. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, mashed potatoes are great. My, uh, my commonwealth ancestry is my irish ancestry is really tingling at that so um i we kind of touched a lot on this already but what's your favorite question dinner party question my favorite dinner party question well the the poet mm -hmm. emerson would often say uh, what has become clear to you since last we met and oh and I, so I think this, this, my favorite dinner party question is whatever is most alive for me generally. And so, mm -hmm. um, but I would say that understanding what's alive for people, what they're learning, I think again, is like mm -hmm. a direct path for me to understand the world more deeply through the lens of other people's perspectives. And so that's always one of my favorites. Mm, love that. What has become clear to you since last we met? I'm going to use that. And last one, if there was a universal answering machine that everyone in the cosmos would hear today and you could leave a message on it, something brief, what would you say? Take your time because we can edit out the pause. <laughs> so everyone gets to hear this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it would be holy shit you're alive before you do anything else just take a moment to think about how ridiculous that is how lucky you are and the very strong likelihood that it will cease to be true at some point in the future so <laughs> Remember, holy shit, you're alive. <laughs>
<laughs> Rock and roll, baby. Uh, that is one of our favorite mugs, actually. So where can people find that merch? Holy shit. Holy, we're it's, alive. It's, we're it's alive. very on the nose. It is holy shit. We're alive. Dot com. <laughs> love and where can people connect with you and your work we didn't even get to talk about tribute there's so much you've done in this in this world and and have already contributed and will continue to contribute so i'm sure we'll have to have you back but Perfect. where can people find and connect with you most easily uh so for all my stuff it's easiest at my personal website it's itsandrewhorn at gmail.com you can also check out tribute.co which is my business that makes it easy to send group video montages on birthdays weddings graduations you name it and it's a whole lot of fun yeah thank you so much for being here brother our conversations are always some of my favorite and this is just more evidence for that being true mm, more soon soon that's it for today awakened one and just a quick thank you from me thank you for gifting us with your most precious resource your time and attention so that we can make this world a more awakened place and if we're not friends on instagram yet then we absolutely should be so come on over and say hello at angelica alana and i'll see you there and see you next week